Hello, and welcome to another episode of Assassinations Podcast. We are going to look at the life and death of Folke Bernadotte, a Swedish diplomat who played an important role during the Second World War, before lending his skills to the post-war conflict in Palestine. This week's episode is brought to you by Clark's. Clark's story began almost 200 years ago when Cyrus and James Clark made slippers from sheepskin. At the time it was groundbreaking, a combination of invention and craftsmanship that's remained at the heart of what Clark's does. I've worn Clark's shoes all my life, from a wee tot being taken to the local store by my mum, through to today when I can purchase them online. So I'm very happy to team up with Clark's and Podgo to bring you up to 30% off selected items. Just go to podgo.co slash Clark's. That's podgo.co slash Clark's. Now, Let's travel to 19th century Sweden. There we will witness a royal scandal that would infuriate the people. A romantic union that will produce the hero, if we may call him that, of today's story. Folke Bernadotte, Count of Wiesborg. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Prince Oscar Carl August Bernadotte, Duke of Gotland, the second son of King Oscar II of Sweden, is in love. That love is, however, forbidden. The object of his affection is Eva Henrietta Munch, the daughter of a minor noble family. Eva serves as lady-in-waiting to his sister-in-law, Crown Princess Victoria. As a royal prince, Oscar is expected to marry according to his father's wishes, and that would mean a dynastic union with a princess from another royal house of Europe. But the 28-year-old prince has a mind, and a heart, of his own. The two met and fell in love in Amsterdam, and now they are about to marry in the English seaside town of Bournemouth. Their union has scandalised the Swedish royal court. 
the king has disinherited his second son, taking him out of the line of succession and removing the title Duke of Gotland from him. The disdain of the royal family for this love match has produced a groundswell of sympathy from the public. The Swedish people feel that their king has been too harsh, too unrelenting in the face of his son's desire to marry for love. Under this public pressure, the king has permitted the newlyweds to retain the courtesy title Prince and Princess Bernadotte. But in order to retain noble status for any offspring from the marriage, Oscar's uncle, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg, offers them the title Count and Countess Wiesberg. Despite the opprobrium of the king, their union is a happy one. Not only are they in love, they share a deep Christian faith and they are motivated by a powerful sense of duty to spread the gospel and support the international work of the YMCA. They will go on to have five children, Maria, Carl, Ebba, Elsa and their youngest, Folke. And it is to Folke's life and times that we must now turn. He was born in Stockholm on the 2nd of January 1895. He attended school in the city and then joined the Swedish army as a cavalry officer in 1915. After leaving the army with the rank of major, during the 1930s he represented Sweden abroad in cultural and economic roles. With the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, Sweden remained neutral. However, Count Bernadotte, as he was known, played a part in organising the country's air defences. He also played a leading role on behalf of the International Red Cross. In particular, he helped to organise prisoner of war exchanges between the Allied and Axis powers. As the war in Europe drew to a close, Bernadotte and the Swedish Red Cross worked feverishly to rescue POWs and civilians from liberated concentration camps. He orchestrated caravans, which became known as the White Buses, to take Danish, Norwegian and Dutch people home from Germany. Many of the liberated people were Jews who had survived the nightmare of the Holocaust. Bernadotte also attempted to negotiate an armistice between Germany and the Allies when, in the dying moments of the war in April of 45, he met with Reichsfuhrer of the SS, Heinrich Himmler. Himmler, acknowledging that the war was lost and hoping to stem the tide of the Soviet advance, asked Bernadotte to convey a peace proposal to Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Harry Truman. Bernadotte told Himmler that this proposal had no chance of acceptance as the Allies were united at this point in their demand for Germany's total and unconditional surrender. Nonetheless, he passed the message on to the Swedish government and from there to the Western Allies. This proposal was made without the knowledge of Adolf Hitler. When the Nazi leader, huddled in the Führer bunker, 
learned of Himmler's peace offer to Britain and the USA, he condemned the SS leader as a traitor. Just days later, Hitler committed suicide. Himmler took his own life while in British custody a few weeks after that. After the war, Count Bernadotte was appointed by the newly formed United Nations to act as a mediator in the conflict in Palestine between the local Arab population and Zionist settlers preparing to establish the new State of Israel. Very broadly, Zionism is an ideological and political movement to establish a Jewish state in the territory defined by some Jewish people as the biblical land of Israel. The area, then called Palestine, had been a British protectorate since the end of the First World War, having previously been part of the Ottoman Empire. The British had agreed to the establishment of a Jewish homeland in part of Palestine at the end of that war. However, the Arab population, as well as the neighbouring Arab states of Egypt and the Transjordan, were fighting against the creation of a new Jewish state. In addition, some Zionist settlers were fighting for a larger Israel, beyond the limits proposed by the British. Bernadotte was able to mediate a short truce during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and he helped to establish facilities to support the thousands of Arab refugees displaced by the fighting and partition of the Holy Land. One of the groups fighting in Palestine was called L'Chai, an acronym that can be translated into English as Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. It was a militant group that utilised insurgency tactics in order to drive the native Arab population from the nascent state of Israel, and also to fight against the British. Lakai was often referred to by the British as the Stern Gang, after one of its leaders, Abraham Stern. Stern was born in 1907 in the Russian Empire. At the age of 18, he emigrated to the British Mandate of Palestine. Studying at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he founded a student organisation that supported the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. During an outbreak of communal violence in Jerusalem between Jews and Arabs in 1929, Stern served with the Haganah, a paramilitary group that would go on to become the core of the Israeli defence forces. Viewing the Haganah as too defensive, Stern joined a more radical group called Ergun, which sought to ensure that every Jewish person from all over the world had an absolute right to settle in Palestine, that the Arab population had to be displaced to accommodate this migration, and that this could only be achieved by military force. Stern spent most of the 1930s travelling back and forth between Jerusalem and Eastern Europe to promote emigration of Jews to Palestine. The British colonial government opposed mass migration. While it vaguely supported the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, they were concerned not to upset the Arabs too much. The British Empire stretched across much of the Arab world, 
from its de facto control of Egypt through Palestine to Iraq and the Persian Gulf. The British therefore wanted to limit Jewish migration to only a few thousand people per year. The demands of some Zionists to increase immigration and more rapidly establish a Jewish homeland threatened many of Britain's larger imperial concerns in the Middle East. At the outbreak of the Second World War, Stern was arrested by the British and interned together with other leading members of Ergun. Stern opposed the policy of most Zionists in Palestine that they had to support the British in their war against Nazi Germany. He believed it was necessary to fight the British to establish a Jewish homeland, regardless of the wider war that was raging across Europe and North Africa. Stern left the group to start his own underground militant organisation, Lachai. The new group needed to raise funds, which Stern did by soliciting donations from overseas Zionists and from robbing British banks in Palestine. These funds were to be used to pay for insurgency operations against the British colonial administration. This included assassinations of senior administrators and police officers. Lachai described itself as a terrorist group, whose means were justified both by the religious writings of the Jewish Torah and the practical need to provide a home for the oppressed Jews of the world. Stern believed it was necessary to undermine British rule in Palestine by any means necessary, even if that meant establishing relations with Britain's wartime foes, the fascist regimes of Germany and Italy. Out of prison, in 1940 he approached what he thought was an Italian intermediary with the aim of winning Italian recognition of a sovereign Jewish state in Palestine. Stern promised that this state would exist as a client of Italy, which would be granted a naval base at Haifa. This intermediary turned out to be an agent of the Haganah, who reported the attempt to strike a deal with Mussolini's Italy to the British authorities. In 1941, Stern made two covert offers to collaborate with the Nazis. He said that his group would act to weaken Britain's military presence in Palestine in order to support Germany's North Africa campaign. In return, Stern requested that the Nazi government support the migration of Jews from Germany and occupied Poland to Palestine in order to create a new Jewish state. These appeals, which were sent to the German ambassador in Turkey, came to nothing. Reaching out to fascism was opposed by most other Zionists, who thought that it was necessary for Britain and the Allies to defeat the Axis powers in order for Palestine to be, as they would put it, liberated. Wanted by the British for his attempted alliance with the enemy, Stern was forced to hide in safe houses in Tel Aviv. He was eventually found hiding with other Lahai members. Alone with three British policemen, Stern was shot and killed. The exact circumstances of his death remain unclear, 
The police report stated that Stern was trying to escape. The Lahai group believed that their leader had been shot in cold blood. After his death, the group continued with its self-described terrorist war against the British Empire. One of its remaining leaders was Yitzhak Shamir, who would later serve as the Prime Minister of Israel from 1983 to 84, and again from 1986 to 92. Shamir plotted the 1944 assassination of Walter Edward Guinness, British Government Minister for the Middle East, who was shot to death outside his home in Cairo. During the remainder of the Second World War, and in the three years that followed, Lakai committed as many as 42 assassinations of British and Arab targets, launched deadly attacks on the British military, and committed potential war crimes in Palestinian civilian areas. In 1946, it bombed the British Embassy in Rome. Further bombings were thwarted, including an attempted letter-bombing campaign targeting leading British politicians. By 1948, it had earned a reputation as one of the most feared and effective militant groups in Palestine, and probably the most intractable. Into this turmoil stepped Count Bernadotte. He was viewed by the United Nations as a good figure to negotiate a peace deal in Palestine. He had diplomatic experience. As a Swede, he had been neutral during the war. Sweden had no colonial possessions and little overt stake in Middle Eastern affairs. Plus, his work with the white ambulances had helped to rescue many Jewish people and others from liberated concentration camps, winning him some sympathy from within the Zionist camp. Violence was raging in Palestine. The political situation, with regional and global implications, had been made even more fraught by the unilateral Israeli Declaration of Independence that was proclaimed on May 14, 1948, by David Ben-Gurion, the executive head of the World Zionist Organization. As we noted earlier, Bernadotte succeeded in achieving a short-lived truce during the Arab-Israeli War. However, his attempts to sell a negotiated peace that met some of the interests of the British, the Arabs and the Zionists was never going to win over the most resolute parties to the conflict, especially not the militants of Lachai. They viewed Bernadotte and the United Nations mission in Palestine to be no more than a tool of British imperialism and therefore an unacceptable obstacle to the creation of the State of Israel. Therefore, according to their unshakable commitment, and their belief in the necessity of terrorist violence, the leadership of Lachai decided to kill Bernadotte in order to scupper the peace process. Other Zionist groups that supported the truce, they considered to be traitors to the cause. However, unbeknownst to Lachai, by September of 1948, most of those other groups had actually already decided to break the ceasefire and renew the armed struggle. Whether or not Bernadotte lived, 
his peace plan was dead in the water. Believing that only they could end the ceasefire, the top leadership of Lehi planned the assassination. They chose a four-man team to ambush Bernadotte's motorcade as it passed through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. On Friday the 17th of September 1948, the team left a secret base to set up a phony roadblock. When Bernadotte's car approached, three of the assassins walked up to the vehicle. A UN security officer called out in Hebrew to let them through. He was ignored. One of the attackers shot Bernadotte through the window with a British Army-issued semi-automatic carbine. The Swedish diplomat was killed instantly. The gang retreated towards their getaway vehicle, with the fourth member waiting at the wheel. They exchanged gunfire with UN soldiers and two other vehicles in the convoy. Three of the Lakai members drove away, while one had to make his getaway on foot. Eventually, all four of the hit squad made it to a small and very religious Jewish community outside the city, where they were given shelter by sympathisers. A few days later, they fled to Tel Aviv in the back of a delivery truck. Bernadotte was pronounced dead at Hadassah Medical Centre. The next day, the UN Security Council issued a formal condemnation, stating that the assassination was, quote, a cowardly act which appears to have been committed by a criminal group of terrorists in Jerusalem while the United Nations representative was fulfilling his peace-seeking mission in the Holy Land. Count Bernadotte's body was flown back to Sweden, where he was given a full state funeral in the presence of his relatives in the royal family. The service was attended by Abba Eban, the chief Israeli negotiator with the United Nations. The broad spectrum of the Zionist movement condemned the assassination, even though few would miss Bernadotte's by then futile attempts to maintain any sort of peace in Palestine. Instead, the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 ended with the establishment of a sovereign Jewish homeland, free of British control incorporating land that had been largely denuded of its Arab population, who were forced into refugee camps in the neighbouring states of Egypt, Jordan, Syria and Lebanon. Though Lachai at first denied responsibility for the attack, it was soon abundantly clear that they lay behind the assassination. Several members were seized by Haganah soldiers and forcibly disarmed, However, none were ever charged by the fledgling Israeli police force. Israel's security services investigated the assassination, but failed to identify the specific participants. The case was then dropped. Despite mild Swedish diplomatic protests, it was clear that the killers were going to be protected from prosecution. Two of them were charged with belonging to a terrorist organisation. They were tried, found guilty, and then immediately pardoned. In 1988, the two surviving members of the HET team admitted that they had killed Bernadotte. 
At a ceremony in Tel Aviv in 1995, attended by the Swedish Deputy Prime Minister, Israel's Foreign Minister and future President, Shimon Peres, stated his regret that Bernadotte had been murdered in a terroristic fashion, and he gave thanks to him for the rescue of Jews during the war. In 1998, Bernadotte was posthumously awarded the Dag Hammarskjöld Medal, given to UN peacekeepers who were killed in the line of duty. The medal is, of course, named after the second UN Secretary General, who, in 1960, died under mysterious and as yet unsolved circumstances, a subject that we investigated way, way back in 2018. I recommend you check it out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. It was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. The theme music is by Graham Ronald. As we heard, the group responsible for the death of Count Bernadotte was also behind the killing of Walter Guinness, First Baron Moyne. We're going to look more at that assassination in a Patreon bonus episode. That will be available later this week. To gain access to this and many other bonus episodes, as well as other perks, just head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. More details are available in the show notes that accompany this episode. If Patreon isn't for you, then could I ask you to go to iTunes or your podcatcher of choice to leave the show a rating or review? It would be much appreciated. And if you would like to reach out with your questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, then please reach out. You can get in touch through the website, assassinationspodcast.com. And please stick around for a minute at the end of the outro music to listen to a trailer for our sister show, Fab Figmentals, hosted by our own Lindsay Morse. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a new investigation. We're going to look at the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, the Iranian general who was killed by a United States drone missile strike in Baghdad in January of 2020. I hope you'll join me for that. Until then, goodbye. Hello, I'm Lindsay Morse, the host of Fab Figmentals a podcast that blends history and storytelling to explore the realm of curious creatures, magical monsters, and beautiful beasts. Each week on the show, I'll introduce you to a new legendary creature, and together we'll explore its mythology and lore. Every episode of Fab Figmentals begins with a story, and then we dive into the history behind the myth. The show features stories from folklore, classic fairy tales, and our own original vignettes, and the stories will often be more Brothers Grimm than Mother Goose. Think whimsy with a bit of an edge. 
New episodes are released every Wednesday, and you'll find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Join me as we set out on an extraordinary exploration into the most fascinating corners of myth.